Thank you for listening to Discussing Race and Racism with Children with Dr. Hassan Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University. This program was recorded on Thursday, December 13th at Bexley Public Library and was offered by the library in partnership with the Bexley Minority Parent Alliance. To learn more about our programs and events, visit bexleylibrary.org or follow us on Facebook. Thank you very much. When Brother uh, Jonathan reached out to me, he said, look, we want to have this conversation on race and discussion with the, uh, with the parents group. And Daniel, come on up, since he's up here. Um, that's what you do with your students. He's like, bro, come on up, man. <laughs> um, I was like, yeah, sure, no problem, right? We'll do it at the end of the semester, we all, it'll, it'll be good. And um, I thought it was going to be an intimate gathering of a few close friends. It's still intimate. It clearly is. But this is wonderful uh, because of the interest that was generated that we all share in the importance of, of this topic, um, discussing race and racism with our children. And I just want to dive, I just want to dive right, right in. Uh, so that we can share some, I want to share some thoughts and ideas uh, with you, and then we will have plenty of time for conversation and discussion. I want us to kind of get on, get on the same page, if you will. Uh, can we see this okay? If you can, I'll read it out. Uh, why is discussing uh, race and racism, now, can you see me okay? All right. Like, don't miss me. Uh, why is discussing race and racism so important? Like, why are we here in the first place? Why are we taking our time out on a Thursday evening uh, to get together to talk about a subject that for many people is just fraught with emotional uh, trauma and danger and worry and concern and we are, we are here because racism touches the lives of every American. It isn't just something that impacts and affects people of color. It certainly does. It is something that touches the lives of every American. And not just today. It is part of the fabric of American history. I, I teach at Ohio State. I teach in uh, the Department of History, my background. Uh, is in uh, African American history with the Duke undergrad, Morehouse, Duke grad, and Morehouse undergrad, and I am very aware of the fact that America, its foundation, rests on these twin pillars. One is capitalism. And the other is racism. That is literally what this nation was founded on. Now just let that wash over you for a second. We, 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 you, might, you might need to close the doors. Because once you're in there, you can't leave. We're gonna deal with we're gonna deal with some heavy. So we're just starting, we're gonna start out. We just got can we just speak plainly and speak some truth here? Right? We're dealing with an issue that this nation has been wrestling with for 250 years. 
It is woven into the fabric of this country. Racism and capitalism. The double helix of America's DNA. It is encoded in this nation. And if it is encoded in this nation, then you know what? It's encoded in our DNA as well. And we haven't come to terms with that yet as a nation, as a people. And we have to. Not just so that we can understand the past, and that's, that's my pitch as a historian, right? I, see some, I got some of my students here, and there's a, there's a quiz afterward. <laughs> Not just so we can understand the past, but so that we can make sense of the present. So we can understand what we are seeing on the news every day. We can understand where this nation is in this present moment and where this nation is going. So on a very macro level, right, we have to understand why do we need to have these discussions about racism? Why do we need to figure this out? Because it helps us understand the world in which we live. That's on a macro level. But on a micro level, racism touches our lives. And it touches the lives of every single person in here. Every single person in here. Now, for some people, it's much more explicit and more direct. Right? It's the experiences and encounters that you have with police. Right? It's the looks and the stares that some may get when they're walking in a neighborhood that they don't live in, or they're visiting somebody, or they're in a grocery store. But it also touches the lives of people who live in all-white suburbs. Because how did that community get that way? Why do your neighbors only look like you? Why is the President of the United States the President of the United States? <laughs> and these aren't just things that we can sort of discuss amongst ourselves. We have to explain this to our children. I'm not going to say you're a bad parent if you're not having these conversations with your kids or thinking about them, but you're a bad parent if you're not having these conversations <laughs> with your kids. Age appropriate, of course, and at least thinking about it. Because what are you doing then? You are preparing them for the world. You are preparing them to be their better selves. For some, it's about enduring. For others, it's about being an ally and not replicating, and not contributing to a problem that this nation has been dealing with for 250 years. So we're starting with the premise. Now, look, this is, Ohio State pays me to talk about just this subject for an entire semester, <laughs> and we don't have that long. But just take my word for it, and we'll unpack some of this as we go through the course of this evening. And we'll see how this impacts all of our lives. So if you are in here and you are black, and you are brown, or you are white, or you are Asian, or you are Latina, it touches your life. It just does, whether we recognize it or not. And therefore, we need to be in discussion about it. We also need to be talking about race, or why is race so important to be a part of this conversation? is because race is one of the core components of our identity. 
Why? Because racism is part of that double helix. It's part of who this nation, what this nation is, and who we are. A part of our core identity. And it's very American. Right? And how do we know it's, it's one of, psychologists will tell us, the two things that, that people, Americans, two things that people recognize, the first two things that they recognize in America, gender and race. All ages, first two things. And if you cannot recognize, and you'll see it, right? This is, this, is, this is how caught up we are in this thing called race and how central it is to our understanding of how we interact with people. Watch people who cannot readily identify the race of somebody they're interacting with. Watch an American lose their mind trying to figure out what the racial background of this person is. Like, oh, are they white? Are they black? I don't know. Help, right? I mean, they are totally, I mean, they lose their mind. And the two things we do that with, we do it with race and we do it with gender. See somebody who is sort of gender nonconforming, right? And watch Americans lose their mind, trying to dance around, trying to figure out, like, how do I talk to you? What do you, like, oh my God, what, do you, what, what are you, right? What objectified, right? The same thing with race. Like, what are you? Like, what is that? I am a human being. Like, what are you? Right? But we see, we struggle with it because it is how we identify. Folks, it's the first thing we see. Conscious or unconscious, it, it is what we do. And along with that, we bring all the cultural baggage with us, both positive and negative. All those racial stereotypes, all that history comes with us in those first moments of interaction. I tell my black students, especially my black male students, uh, at Ohio State, and those who after, and Daniel may realize this, I had that problem with Daniel, because Daniel spoke up. And he sat in the front row like this too, just like staring at me, like, bro, come with it. I was like, you have to speak if you are in a college classroom, and you are a black student, and especially a black male. That you don't have the luxury of silence if you are a black male in the classroom, even at a place like Ohio State. Because by being silent, what is being projected onto you, whether consciously or unconsciously, is all the negative stereotypes that still exist about black males in America today. Every single one of them. And you have to do the work of disrupting those stereotypes by using your voice in the classroom. Like you don't have, like black folk in America, young black men who are in college don't have the luxury of being shy. They don't. I say like women in math classes and engineering classes. You don't have the luxury, you can't sit in the back and just be quiet and do your work. Like you have to demonstrate that you do not fall into the stereotype that is still dominant, that women ought not be engineers, don't have the capacity to, to, to do math. You have to break that each and every time you walk into a classroom. That's the power of racial identity. And you haven't done anything but walk into class. And all of that weight is still on your shoulders. So it's central, central to our identity. But we don't talk about it. 
We don't talk about it. We don't talk about race. I'll say, and I'll say a, a, a few words about why we don't talk about racism, but we certainly don't talk about race. And we don't talk about it, or, or why we don't talk about it, is because it's difficult, and it's difficult because race isn't real. Especially talking about it with our kids. Try to, look, it's hard enough, and I have, I have three girls, and some of the teachers are here, yeah. An eight-year-old, a six-year-old, uh, and, and a three-year-old. Try explaining to them something that is real. Right? Explaining to your kids something that like, actually exists. Right? A game. I tried explaining to my eight-year-old, my, my Asha, my oldest, when she was six years old, I was like, look, I got all girls. I'm good with that. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to learn about baseball. Right? So I'm like, we're going to sit down. And she's a Mets fan now. But I remember the first time I sat down with her, and I was like, we're about to do this baseball thing. Right? And so we're sitting down, and we're watching the game. And, you know, batter's up, and the batter hits the ball. I'm like, okay, that's the batter, and he runs to first base. She's like, well, why does he run that way and not this way? And I'm like, all right, because that's the rules, right? You run this way. It's like, okay, well, why don't you just keep on going? And about five minutes, I was like, man, forget this, right? Like, this makes no sense. This game makes no sense, right? Like, I'm done as a parent, right? You just go to school, right? So that was it for baseball. And baseball is real. Like, baseball is concrete. Baseball is tangible. You can actually see it. You can play it. You can be a part of it. Race is, race is biologically meaningless. It is biologically meaningless. It means nothing. Genetically, it means absolutely nothing. It means, so how do you explain something that means nothing to a child? It means nothing. It's a fabrication of, of difference in our mind, right? To stratify and separate or create a hierarchy in society. It's biologically meaningless, and this is where it becomes especially difficult, but it's socially meaningful. So now you have to explain to a child something that is in, in a very real way a fiction. It's meaningless. It ought not have no real value. It does not shape anything about you biologically. It does not determine your intelligence. It does not determine your skill in the classroom or outside of the classroom. And yet, it has this social weight. It, it, it shapes the contours of our lives and has been doing so for generations. That's part of the difficulty of just dealing with race. So now you have to explain to your child what is illogical and yet will touch their lives. Socially, biologically, meaningless, Socially meaningful, that identity thing, how people operate and go through the world, and culturally, culturally relevant. This is the other thing, and we're going to talk about colorblindness uh, a little bit down the road in a few minutes, but the culturally relevant thing is, is really important. Socially meaningful, it, it, it helps lay the landscape for our lives, right? It, 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 it shapes and informs the choices that we have. One thing I say in class all the time, right? Everybody has choices, but everybody doesn't have the same set of choices. What governs, what determines the sets of choices that we have? Race is one of those things. Gender is one of those things, right? Determines the kinds of choices that we have. Our socioeconomic status determines the kinds of choices 
that we have. So in that sense, race socially meaningful, but it's culturally relevant because what we are actually saying with race, what race stands in as a substitute for is cultural heritage. So in that sense, it's culturally relevant. When you turn on uh, the radio, right? Again, one of the first things we do uh, is sort of pick up voices, right? And, 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 and sort of language and diction and dialect, right? Helps us situate where people are. The way people worship, the way people dance, the music, all of that is just sort of cultural heritage that we inherit that is connected to this thing that we call race, but it's really just about the people who we are and where we come from. And that is rich and that is meaningful. And that ought to be acknowledged and recognized and celebrated. That's what you want. And so when we talk about colorblindness, that's the problem with colorblindness. Because you start talking about, well, I don't want to recognize your race. But what you're really saying is, in doing that, is I'm not going to recognize your cultural heritage. Like, I want you to see that. right? See me as an African American. See me as a black man, because that represents the community and the culture that I come from. What I don't want you to do is to discriminate against me because of my race slash cultural heritage. So in that sense, race is meaningful in the American context because it really stands in, it stands in as a substitute for cultural heritage. And that's one of the main reasons why we have to engage in conversations with our children about it. To say, listen, you, we need to talk about race because this is your cultural heritage. We need to talk about the race of other people because that is their cultural heritage, using the language of America. That's, that's, the, that's, that's what, those are the cards that we are dealt. And so we're doing a disservice to our children when we choose to not have those discussions. That's just race. Like, why is discussing race so difficult. But we also have to talk about racism. Yeah, I, I, I get a lot of, um, not a lot, but I get a fair number of invitations to have, to participate in dialogues and conversations on race. And, and I, I'm at the point now where I tell people like, look, you know what? I'm not really interested in having another dialogue and conversation on race. <clears throat> Like, call me back when you're ready to have a dialogue and conversation about racism, right? Race connected to racism, because race ain't the problem. Racism is the problem, and how it manifests itself in the past as well as in the present. But we have a difficulty, we have difficulty talking about racism. So much so that we can't even name it. Like I'm not making this stuff up. One of the things, one of the things I, one of the things I learned this semester, uh, in our class, I think it was in fact. One of the things I learned this semester is I was talking, and Daniel, you might remember this. We were talking about the March on Washington, right? And everybody knows March on Washington, 1963. I know y'all know Martin Luther King, so you got to know at least know March on Washington. So the March on Washington, I was telling the students, I said, you know what? The, um, the day after the March on Washington. The headlines for um, all of the papers nationally, right? 250,000 people, mostly African American, descend on Washington, D.C., uh, calling for a march on Washington for jobs and freedom. 
and you know, calling for support of what will become the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And it's at the number one, the headlines for uh, the next day. And what were they? And, and you know, people were like, oh, you know, I have a dream, Martin Luther King, right? And I was like, no. The headlines for the next day were Negroes don't riot in Washington, D.C. Negroes don't riot. Because it was assumed that there's no way you can get 200,000 plus black folk to come to Washington, D.C. and not burn the city down. What I learned in that moment is one of the students in the back, Zach, is sitting on his computer and he says, oh, Dr. Jeffries, look, you're right. <laughs> and he's like, this is the headline from the Washington Post. I just Googled it. And I was like, well, that's very good. But in the back of my mind, I was like, God damn. <laughs> I just got fact checked in my own class. <laughs> I was like, all right, I was like, it's, a, it's a new day, right? It's a new day. But the point is, I don't know what the point is at this point. But it was something important about this stuff is real. So why can't we discuss, why do we find discussing racism difficult? One, because the past is painful, right? Oh, I know what I was going to say. I'm not coming to it. Listen to the way we talk about issues and identifying sort of racism in sort of popular media and the press, right? Like if somebody says something that is clearly racist, they say, well, it was racially insensitive. It was racially unfortunate. It was racial. And I'm like, how many, I mean, my God, I mean, you're doing these mental gymnastics, right? You're just keeping a list. Just say racist, it's a lot simpler, right? Like, you know, he, this person is being raci it's racially, uh, it's, it's racially unfortunate that this person was racially insensitive. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Right? And this is not new. We're struggling with it because we don't want to name, we don't want to identify it. But guess what? This, this, that's not new. Right? The founders of the nation in the Constitution never mentioned slavery. Not explicitly. They come up with all these euphemisms involuntary labor, and all this stuff. So we have been dancing around it, not wanting to deal with it from the very founding of this, the start of the country. So I tell, when I'm talking, when I'm talking to white folk, like y'all, good white folk, like y'all, I say, don't feel bad if you're struggling with identifying and calling it out. Because James Madison had the same issue. Thomas Jefferson had the same issue. This is something that we have been struggling with for 250 years. Right? And why? Because the past and today. Why are we dealing with this? Why are we still struggling with it? Because the past is painful. Like my, the area of my research sort of focus is uh, civil rights, 20th century African American history. But I can't teach African American history in the 20th century without dealing with slavery. You can't. You can't teach American history without dealing with slavery. And yet, we are quick to drop it. We are quick to pretend that it was sort of an unfortunate circumstance and condition. That happened where? Down there. Like, this is Ohio. I was going to say, this is Ohio. We, we, we the good white folk. In Ohio. We underground railroad white folk in Ohio, right? And my students will come in and be like, oh, we got the underground railroad down. 
like, what does that mean? Recently, and, and, and it's, well, at the bottom of the hour, maybe a little bit later, I want to show a, um, a video that a group of, of my students did that went down to James Madison's plantation. So this, this semester, uh, myself and a group of 11 students uh, from Ohio State, we went and did, spent four days at James Madison's plantation, father of the Constitution, architect of the Bill of Rights. And we know about Jefferson's Monticello and, and uh, uh, Washington's Mount Vernon, but uh, James Madison's plantation just sort of went online within the last 20 years or so. And there's no sort of Washington, uh, sort of you know, descendants of Washington group. So because of that, they're able to do some really um, fascinating and probing looks at Madison's life and the history of racism and slavery in America. Madison was a slaveholder on more than 100 enslaved people um, over the course of, in, of his entire life, architect of the Bill of Rights, never freed a single soul. Never freed a single soul. And so two years ago, I, I was invited to go down there, and, and, I, and I got the call. This is the thing about, this is how race plays out in our everyday lives. I got the call to go down to, 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 to James Madison's plantation, and when the call came in, the fellow was like, look, you know, we're, we're doing an exhibit on slavery on the plantation in America. And we want to see about, uh, we want to bring some people down to help us create this sort of legacy exhibit, legacy film. And we want to you know, come on down for sort of a weekend workshop. And I was excited. I was like, yeah, this is like, I'm a historian. I understand the power of place. I've never been there. I'm like, I'm all in. And the brother in me was like, hold up, bro, right? Like, this is a slave plantation, right? Like, don't be so excited, right? You need to rein this in. And, and that's the duality, right? Like, like, what are they asking you to do? Who are the people? How are they interpreting this? You know, what are, do they understand the totality of this? Do they see it as woven into the fabric of this nation? Or are they, or, or, or are they just playing around? And, and so I decided to go because one of the things that, that we really need to do, I think, more as historians is engage the public, right? And have these public conversations and be a part of creating public history. And so I went down. And I remember getting down there and I had that uneasiness. And let me let you in on, and, 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 and people of color here, and black folk, y'all can tell me now, you know when you go into a space that is, that is beautiful, Right? I mean, it's the rolling hills, and you'll see in the, video, in, the, in the video, I mean, it's the rolling hills of Virginia. I mean, it is beautiful, right? But it is an uneasy beauty because you know what happened there, right? And so I'm driving up, and I'm just, you know, trying to, get, trying to get in the right frame of mind, right, to go to this place where an atrocity occurred, right? And we, you know, I drop my stuff off, and I go to the, uh, to the mansion, uh, 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 Madison's sort of estate, Mansion plantation home, and one of the first things we do is the director of education takes us up to Madison's library. I'm like, man, this is great. This is literally the study overlooking the rolling hills of Virginia, right, in which James Madison composed over the course of three or four months, surrounded by 4,000 books, right, of, 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 of the greatest philosophers of, in, 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 uh, in the West, right, in, in, in Western Europe. And, and this is it, the power of place. I'm standing in the footsteps where the Bill of Rights 
was drafted. Cool, right? I can appreciate that. Then we go downstairs. And when we go downstairs to the, to the lower level, the basement level, that's where they're having the exhibit on uh, slavery, right? And they're developing it out. And it's still, being, it's still in fabrication mode. So Christian, who is the director of education, is pointing out to us in a small group that's there, like, this, this exhibit's going to go on this wall, and the film is going to go on this wall. And, and then he finally says, oh, I want you all to do something for me. And he says, I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to take your hand and just run it along the wall. And it's a, it's a cellar, right? So it's a, it's a brick wall, painted whitewashed and painted white. And, and as soon as he says that, as soon as he says that, I flash back immediately to my three-year-old, Alayla, who, anytime we get out of the car, she takes her little hand and runs it along the side of that dirty bank of mine, right? And just, just as happy as she can be, right? Just yada da 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 runs it, swipes it along, and then because she's three years old, she takes her hand and immediately goes to her mouth, right? So I'm like, oh, I hate when she does that, right? And so when he says, you know, run your hand along the wall, I immediately flash back to my three-year-old, right? To a lady. And I'm like, oh my God, and I laugh to myself, ha ha. Right? And, then, and then he says, he says, what do you think? He brings me back. He brings us all back, or well, myself, because I'm daydreaming at that time, to, so he says, what do you feel? Right? And I'm like, oh. And I, and I sort of concentrate on the moment, and I said, oh, well, I feel it's a brick wall, right? And I'm like, I feel mortar. And it's handmade, so, you know, it's sort of uneven and lumpy, right? And he's like, all right. And he says, no, feel inside the brick, right? Run your hand along the wall and feel inside the brick. And if you do that long enough, eventually you will come to a point where one or more of the bricks have indentations. And then he says, when you feel the indentations, stop and look at what the indentations are. And when you turn and you look at the indentations, you realize that they are handprints. Because all the bricks on James Madison's plantation were made by enslaved people. But they're not the handprints of an adult. They're the handprints of a child. Because it was the duty and task of the enslaved children on the plantation to make the bricks for all of the buildings on that land. So my little three-year-old, had she been born then, her greatest concern wouldn't have been daddy yelling at her for swiping her hand along a dirty car. It would have been making bricks for the President of the United States. And so the library that James Madison composed, the Bill of Rights, rests on a foundation of bricks made by children he claimed ownership over. Now, how do I explain that to my kids? Because that's America. That's where this country comes from. That's the history and the heritage that we have to deal with. And why it's hard to talk about slavery. But we can't talk about the present 
unless we deal honestly with the past and with that history. To say nothing about Jim Crow, about formal segregation that doesn't just exist, and this is why we're moving to that territory, we gotta explain stuff to our kids. Why do you live where you live? Why do these children live in Bexley? Why is up, I'm not gonna pick on Bexley today. Upper Arlington, why is Upper Arlington, the black population of Upper Arlington less than 1% today? When we think about the history of segregation, formal and informal, decisions were made that created the communities in which we live. That black folk were excluded in Columbus, Ohio from moving to Upper Arlington. Couldn't buy a home in there in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. There's a reason why communities look as white as they do. And there's a reason why certain communities look as brown as they do. And all of that has to do with this much longer history of racial segregation. We think about Jim Crow, right? And we, we like to think about it as this sort of unfortunate condition of people, black folk, not being able to sit in the back of the bus somewhere, not being able to drink at a, a water fountain with cold water on a hot summer's day. But we don't like to think about it as being what it was, a system designed to exploit the labor of black folk that use violence to enforce it. And what are the implications of that for how I got to be where I am today? One of the things I'm going to ask you to think about in having, before you have these conversations with your children, is this idea of your own racial biography. Where did you come from? Not just what is your racial identity, but what is your racial biography? How did your people come to be where they are? And why? I shared this with my class. My, I, my people are originally from uh, Georgia, on my father's side, enslaved in Georgia. We can go all the way back to my great-grandparents who were enslaved, my great-great-grandparents who were enslaved in Georgia. My great-grandfather is born during, Recon during Reconstruction, 1870s, great-grandfather and grandmother, born during Reconstruction, and by somehow, by hard work, early 1900s, in Georgia, where, they have, where their parents have been enslaved, they're able to get some land. They're able actually to get some land and become black landowners. But for some reason that we are uncertain, after my great-grandfather dies, my great-grandmother has to leave the land that they and her family had acquired, just leave it, and they move to Akron with my, with my grandfather. And she's there for a few years in the 1920s, and then she dies, working her entire life, just as my, my great-grandfather had worked their entire life. She dies and sends my grandfather to live with his oldest sister in Newark, New Jersey. And he grows up in Newark, New Jersey. And my great-aunt, Aunt Bessie, everybody should have an Aunt Bessie. Aunt Bessie, she, she actually bought a house, right? She bought a house, right, in Newark for a few thousand dollars. My grandfather works, you know, odd jobs here and there. Grandmother works as a, uh, a dry cleaner. Uh, they never are able to purchase a home. Living, work their entire lives, never able to purchase a home. My father, so when they pass away, guess what they left my parents? 
None. The same thing my grandfather inherited from his mother. None. Not because they didn't work hard. Right? Because they, they could only buy in this section of Newark, New Jersey, Aunt Bessie's home that she owned for over 40 years, never appreciated. Never appreciated in value. And couldn't move to another community. Because it was too far from a job, even if she could get in, even if she could get in. So my parents who were social workers, which means that my brother and I grew up poor, they are able, <laughs> they're able to purchase a home in 1980. Purchase a home in 1980, talk about Jim Crow, in Brooklyn, New York, in Crown Heights. Purchase a home in 1980 for $50,000 at 29% interest. That was just the 80s, though. Right? <laughs> plus plus a, little, a little black tax in there, but it was also just the 80s, right? But $50,000. And that's where my brother and I grew up. Now, that home was, wasn't valued much more than $50,000 for the next 20 years in this all-black neighborhood. Right? And there were far worse neighborhoods than that. Right? But this is New York City. This is the Jim Crow North. This is an all-black neighborhood, all-black community. Literally growing up, in the melting pot of America, I saw one white person who wasn't a police officer, police officer or a paramedic my entire life before I went to college in my neighborhood. One white person. And I was in that neighborhood. And it was a white lady walking with a black kid. And as a child of social workers, I knew that I was a social worker. Right? In other words, racial segregation was absolute. But I could hop on the train and go four stops and I'd be in an all-white neighborhood. And so this community, Crown Heights, Brooklyn, that black folk, you know, I think about, I can't imagine now living in a community where, and this is, this is why it's talking about racism and, and race and how we grow up and our old racial biographies and where we were is so important to our children, right? Like, I hear fireworks now, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I went to bed in the 1980s hearing gunshots every night. My father and I had a game. I'd be upstairs doing homework, and I'd hear some gunshots on the corner, and this was a decent neighborhood, right? In the middle of Brooklyn. I hear gunshots on the corner come down. My dad was like, how many did you hear? And I was like, oh, I counted five. And he was like, oh, me too. I get some popcorn and go back upstairs. And we think about, like, that was just like a reality. And so nobody was moving into that neighborhood. And by nobody, I mean white people. Yet by 2000, year 2000, all this is through Jim Crow, right? policy and banking and funding and who can live where and where realtors are showing stuff. By 2000, my father had white neighbors. I go there now, and he's one of the few black families left on the block. I mean, the neighborhood has flipped that quickly. And this house, because he was paying for my brother and I to go to college, this house, in the 38 years that they've been there, hadn't seen a repair the first that didn't involve duct tape, right? I'm saying, there ain't no paint, nothing, right? But this is the family home. But guess what? My parents, who are now retired, and God bless them, I'm not trying to put them in the ground, but when they pass away, that home now, based upon what other homes are going for, and it is, is at least a million and a half dollars, right? If we choose to sell. So when my parents pass away, and they leave us that, that will be, think about this, that will be the first time in the history of my family that there has been an intergenerational transfer of wealth. 
the first time, 150 years after slavery, with family members owning land and owning homes and working each and every day since. It will be the first time. So I have to explain, we have to explain that to our kids. That the starting line, when we say go, people aren't starting at the same point. I remember I came to, to Ohio State and I had a colleague and I got here, just coming out of grad school, and I'm living in an apartment, and one year in, and she got a house. And I'm like, well, how the hell did that happen? And she was like, oh, my dad just paid for it. And I was like, okay, all right. I understand, right? I'm waiting for my, I'm waiting for my dad to die, right? <laughs> Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> the past, the past is painful. Slavery, Jim Crow. But the present is equally painful. The present is equally painful. And I think even more so now, especially as it relates to how we interact with our children. Being from New York, when Eric Garner, if, if, for those who may recall, Eric Garner was the African-American male in Staten Island, New York, who was choked to death by the police. Remember, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And it's caught on video. The present is painful. There was, uh, soon after Eric Garner was, was, was murdered, right? there's no other way, soon after Eric Garner was murdered by police, Ohio State was having a, a community, was having a forum, a forum of students, right? And they had asked me um, to help um, facilitate the discussion about it. Because this is, you know, post Trayvon Martin, post what's going on in Ferguson, like this is on the minds of students. And I'm like, all right, Dad, I'm in, I'm all in. And because, because maybe like many of you, you know, are news junkies, right? Like MSNBC and CNN and, and not Fox uh, are constantly, are constantly are like on high rotation, right, in the house. And but because I have, I, I have young children, I do try to sort of monitor it, right? And I try to listen when not there, or you know, I try not to have it on as much. But because I was doing this, doing this talk, I, ha I had it on, right? And and Asha, my oldest, she was only four years old at the time. This is literally as I'm getting ready to walk out the door to go talk to students about the meaning of the murder of Eric Garner and these these literal police killings of unarmed African Americans. I didn't even realize that she was watching it or picking it up. She turns to me as I walk out the door and she says, Dad, am I going to die like that? Am I going to die like that at four years old? And you know what? I couldn't honestly say to her, no. I couldn't honestly say to her with 100% certainty, no, you will not. The likelihood, I hope, is slim to none. But I could not say no. So now, how do I go back and explain why not? How come I can't provide her that comfort? That's why we don't want to talk about racism. Because whether you're black or white, as long as you have some degree of conscious awareness, what do we want to do when it comes to our kids? We want to preserve and protect their innocence. 
We want to protect their innocence. We want to keep them from having to worry about, am I going to die like that? I don't want you to have to worry about, I'm going to die, period. Let alone, am I going to die like that? And so we tend to shy away from it, right? Because it's painful. And you do not want to see, for those who have kids, and I'm, I'm, I'm still learning this every day, we do not like to see our kids in pain. We do everything possible, unless we inflict it. We do everything possible, <laughs> right, to keep our children from feeling pain. Especially, especially when it's that sort of complicated plane of we cannot then provide comfort after it. So we avoid, right? We avoid things that are troubling. And of course, why is discussing racism so difficult? Because of the persistence of racial stereotypes. They still exist. We pretended when Barack Obama was elected that we had moved into this mythic post-racial place, right, where race suddenly didn't, didn't matter. 40% of white folk voted for an African-American for president. And I'm like, that ain't nothing but the Oprah effect, <laughs> right? It's like, you can go to the suburbs, and white women have been cool with Oprah for two decades. Like, they were girls. You go into suburbs in, in, in Ohio and look into a little 12-year-old white kid's room, and you'll see posters of black athletes all the time, right? Beamed into, because why? Because suddenly those individuals who they assume that they have gotten to know because they're constantly being bombarded with their images are what? They're human beings. They see in them the characteristics that they like and adore and would like to see in themselves. But here's the, here's the thing that Americans do, right? And this is, the, this is the place where we are when it comes to sort of race relations in America. And this is why, this is why as, as, as I heard a little kid say one time about something else, a tricky trap. He said his parents set a tricky trap for him. I like, this, is, this is the tricky trap of race in America. We can latch on to an individual and hold up an individual like Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, right? And an Oprah Winfrey, an actor, an entertainer, a politician. And, and, and project onto them all of the characteristics we like about ourselves, we can acknowledge all of the characteristics that we like in them and still retain all of the stereotypes about the racial group from which they are from. All of the negative stereotypes about black folk still can exist in the minds of people who vote in support of Barack Obama. So that didn't mean that we moved into a post-racial era. It just moved, meant that we moved into another way of, of maintaining racism in our own minds and lives. And still doing something that we then thought would absolve us of the racism that we had. That's that tricky trap that we have to be aware of. So we didn't move into a post-racial era. And that became clear, if it wasn't already, in 2016, but we'll get there later. So, how do we go about this? How do we tackle this tough conversation? We gotta have it, but we tend not to because it's difficult and hard, it's complicated, right? About race and racism. So what do we need to do? Or what do we need not to do first? The big don't. Don't avoid it. And before you get to the do's, you can't avoid it. 
And now I'm really preaching to the choir because if y'all were trying to avoid it, y'all wouldn't be here. Right? So I'm glad you are here because you understand that we can't avoid it. Whether consciously or unconsciously, intuitively or not, you realize that this is something that has to be engaged and discussed. Right? So you can't avoid it. Because when you avoid it, when you avoid talking about both race and or racism with our children, you are actually signaling to them that it doesn't matter. And if they bring something up, right, and you shut them down, you're signaling to them that it's a taboo subject. So the first thing that you have to do is you can't avoid it. You have to dive in. Right? You got to do what uh, MSNBC says now. It's a little tagline. You got to lean into it. Right? You got to lean in. Now, part of the reason why we don't want to lean in because if you lean too far, you'll fall over right? and bust your head. But we can't be afraid of that. Right? So the first thing you have to do is you have to be ready and willing to engage it. So there's only really one don't. And that's don't do it. Don't not do it. There's a whole bunch of English teachers in here. right? Don't not do it. Right? The do's. You have to engage. You have to engage. The one big do is do it. You have to engage. And you don't wait. You don't wait until something happens. You don't wait if you are a child of color, a parent of color, and you have a child of color for that incident to happen uh, where their race is called into question, where somebody throws a racial slur at them. You, go, you, you talk to their, your children at the youngest ages on your terms. I once sat uh, at an uh, MLK celebration, and I sat next to a parent, um, a white mother, who had an African-American child, a biracial child. And we sat at this um, uh, MLK celebration, which was, which was wonderful. And she leans over to me as it's getting ready, and she says, Hassan, she says, have you been to one of these before? And it was at CSG, so my daughter was like, I was like, oh yeah, right? This is my third year or so. I was like, it's really nice, right? I thoroughly enjoy it. <laughs> and she turns to me and she says, well, this is my first one. And I was like, and I thought that was odd because she's a very active, very involved parent, right? Clearly loves her, loves her daughter. And I was like, really? Your first one? And I, I was trying to figure out, like, 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 why? Like, why is it you must have been working or out of town? And for some reason, I asked, because usually, like, I'm not really that interested in your life, right? You ask me the details of your life. But I just thought it was so odd that she would say this was her first one. So I asked her, I said, well, I said, well why is this? Like, why is it your first one? And I was giving her. Jenny, I was giving her all kind of outs. I was like, were you working? Like, were you out of town? Did your husband bring her? Like, like, and she was like, no, it's my first one. I kept her home on those other days. And so now I'm really like, all right, what you got going on, right? Like, what is happening here? And, and she said, I didn't want um, her to be exposed to these, 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 these issues of race. Right at this age, five years old, and I was like, "It's a King Day celebration, right? Like it's the most like non-radical version of exposure to race in America that you could possibly have, and you're worried about that? Like, like, like this is the shallow end, right? 
Like this isn't even a foot deep, right? This is thick. You can stick your toe in here, right? And and, and so what is so I'm like, all right, we gotta engage this. Because usually, and I, I've said this before, like when I get on a plane, like I knew her. So I was like, all right, let me figure out what's going on here. Usually when I get on a plane, these are the conversations I avoid. Right? People ask me, like, what do you what do you do? Like, hello, hello. Like, what do you do? Right? And and they tell me, say, what do you do? I was like, oh, you know, I'm a carpenter, right? Like, I don't <laughs> you know, some days I'm a carpenter, some days I'm a plumber. Because I don't want to hear, right, it's like, oh, you know, I teach African-American history and deal with civil rights and race and politics. Oh, let me tell you, my sister's brother's aunt married a black guy. I'm like, <laughs> and then, you know, I got to hit three hours, right, of how racially enlightened they are. <laughs> and then what do I do at the end? Like, they're looking for absolution, right? Like, God bless you. <laughs> Go, go forth and be non-racial. Like, I don't know. But here, I was like, man, I was fascinated. I was like, what is going on here, right? And it was like, I don't want to expose her to this stuff, right? And so the conversation that we had, I was like, look, I was like, you take her to the doctor and get vac vaccinate vaccinations, don't you? And she said, yeah. I said, that's what talking about race is at this early age. It is an inoculation to white supremacy. If you avoid it, you're not avoiding exposing them to the disease. It is there. It is in the air. It is in the atmosphere. It is what we breathe. So you can decide whether or not to provide her and arm her and equip her with what she needs to defend against it, or you can just let her be exposed to it. Because the one thing I can guarantee you is the children will be exposed. Like psychologists tell us that as children, as, as infants, just a few months old, children can distinguish and identify race. Why? They're picking up cues from us. So if you don't have these conversations, children will be picking up these cues from the larger society. And you say, oh, well, maybe that won't be so bad. Here's an example. Who do you want talking to your children about sex? You or their friends? You or MTV and music videos and hip-hop music and movies? And I even got to the internet, right? And it's the same thing. You want to, as a parent, to control that environment. And how are we suddenly going to ignore a factor that is so central to their environment? So I told her, I said, look, I'm very glad that you're here. And I left it at that. But in my mind, I was like, girl, you tripping. Right? She should have been here, and you better be here next year. And then after that, we go into the Malcolm X celebration, which they don't have yet, and we don't go. I was like, you got that work. You have to inoculate you have to. Like, why would you cede that territory? Why would you surrender your child to that? Because even if you are in the absence of being, in the absence of being um, ahead of the curve, in the absence of doing it yourself, you are letting other people in. And you cannot control that. You want your children to come back to you and say, I heard this and it doesn't make any sense rather than say, I heard this and they're done, or not even come to you. 
Because you have to be the one to filter this. And they, if you don't talk to them about it, they won't know to come to you. They'll go to their friends. And maybe in their friend's home, their parents are talking to them. But this is America, so I guarantee you, they ain't saying what you want them to say. And then you're just descending down a rabbit hole. So here we go. Five keys to the conversation. If you're going to have these tough conversations, if you're going to be serious about it, if you're going to commit to it, if you're going to talk to your kids about it, at all ages, at all ages, you have to be age specific, but just speaking generally, at all ages, there's a couple things that you've got to do. The first is you have to have self-awareness of your own racial identity. You have to have self-awareness of your own racial identity. What does that mean? Now here, I'm speaking explicitly and directly to the white people who are here. What does that mean? That means that you are white. Let me say that again. That means white people, you are white. In America. It is what it is. And you know how I know you're white because I see you. And your kids see you. And they see you as white. And guess what you cannot do if you do not own your own whiteness in your own house and you try to have a conversation about race with your child. They will look at you like you are a fool. You want to talk about race and you've never actually said or identified what your own race is. You're going to tell me what I am or what somebody else is and I don't even know what you are. You haven't even explored that for them in your own mind to be able to say, this is, this is who I am and this is what it means. Biologically meaningless, socially relevant, helps explain how we are and culturally significant because it informs the things that we do in our house, with our family, and with our community. But if you haven't even explored that for yourself, how are you going to have a serious conversation with your child about it? About what racism actually means, about the history of it. If you are so uncomfortable with being able to identify what your race is in this world. Say, like, wow, you know, I'm just an American. Well, stop. You ain't ready for the conversation. Like, you can't be afraid of it. You got to own it. You can't ask your child to own something that you are unwilling to own yourself. And if you are black, it's the same thing. We're going to talk about black folk now. If you are black, it's the same thing. Like, you got to own that identity. What does it mean? Define it for yourself, but put it in historical context. And don't be afraid of it. Don't run from it. You got to own it. The good and the bad, the history and the hope, the struggle, the failures, the success, all of that. Like, you have to own that. Because your kids, children, look, the one thing I have learned, like, from my, from my, from just, it wasn't from books. Lord have mercy. It's just some raising these three kids. It's that children smell weakness, right? And they, they, they can sniff it out, right? And they, I mean, they will chew you up and spit you back if they, and you just might as well run, right? And just 
just give up. Right? You have to own that. This is who I am. And it gets complicated because you may have, you, you may be black, your, your, your wife may be white, your partner may be white, you may have a multiracial child, whatever it is, you have to figure out what the hell is going on in your house <laughs> and your family and own it so that when you move into that conversation, your child is aware of who you are in this world. That's step one. And we can't be afraid of it. Now, black folk know they're black. Like, and if you didn't know, just hang out with me around some white folk, and they'll let you know that they're black. Like, it ain't that complicated for black folk, right? Now, some of us may push back against it, and like, I'm black, but I ain't that black, and all that. Wow, y'all work that out, right? <laughs> that's, a separate, that's a separate kind of issue that black folk got to deal with. But white folk are coming from a different place, right? It's like, like white folk, I have no race. Like, I'm race neutral. I'm race normal, right? Like, don't do that to your children. Because you know what you're raising? Little racists. That's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. Let them see, there's nothing, like race is in fact, again, biologically meaning, there's nothing wrong with it. It's only what we project onto it. So explain that for them by what they, by modeling it for them, right? Saying it's okay to recognize race. It's not okay to project prejudice onto people because of it. But if you don't stand up and acknowledge your own race for your own child, however young or however old they are, then you can't expect them to do the same thing. So it begins with having this stuff. And that means you gotta, you gotta go back. It doesn't mean, this is what that does not mean, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't mean that you go get an ancestry DNA test, right? Get a printout and then give it to your kid and be like, yo, here's race, I'll see you at Thanksgiving, right? Like, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. It means saying, where, 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 where was I born? Where were my parents born, right? Why does, you know, this part of the family look a little darker than this part of the family, right? Like, that's that sort of uh, racial genealogy that you have to do. The DNA stuff is cool. It's nice, it's fun, right? But in the end, what does it really mean, right? Like, you know, I, I did it just out of curiosity because I'm a historian, and eventually, you just gotta do it as a historian. And it came back, and it said that I was 23% Nigerian. And I was like, I'm not 100% Nigerian? I was going for 100% Nigerian, right? It's like, no, Hassan, you're only 23% Nigerian, right? And then it was like 16% Senegalese, and then it was like 10% um, Ivory Coast in Ghana. So I was like, cool. But then there was this 16% Great Britain. Shocking, I know. 16% Great Britain. And so, in my family, got some, got some grandparents, great grandparents from Cape Verde Island. So I was like, okay, I can, I can see, you know, how we could get that in here. And we go back to Georgia. There was some other stuff going on. But I was like, all right, 16% Great Britain. So I was like, that's 16% white. Like, what the heck does that mean? Right? And I was like, all right. Next time I get pulled over by the police. <laughs> I'm going to pull out my 16% card. And I'm like, they got me a discount on this somehow. Right? 
I'm like, I'm just like you, man. What does it mean? It doesn't change where I was from. It doesn't change, it doesn't change what, you know, that my, where my parents could and could not go to college. It doesn't change the fact that my grandparents couldn't go to college. It doesn't change the fact that my great-grandparents lost their land, right? It doesn't change any of that, right? Again, because that genetic, the, the genetic mapping of it is really meaningless. But it does reflect kind of where we are from, right? So if you want to take a long view of where you are from and dig into the history, then it becomes useful and meaningful, right? So you bring it in. Don't use it as a substitute for the conversation and racial, and in your racial biography. Use it as something that, that complements it. Listen to what your child is asking if you're having this conversation. And this is, you know, this is something I picked up at the PYC, right, over at CSG. Listen to what your child is asking. Answer the question that they're asking. Don't answer the question that you think they're asking or that you want them to ask. I think that's just good parenting, right? That's like parenting 101, right? When your child asks you a question, like, are we going to grandma's house? I said, go to bed, right? Like, that's not, that wasn't a question I asked, Dad, right? So parenting 101, if they're asking you, especially younger children, if they are asking you something, right, about, you know, why is, why is, my, why is my sister's skin darker than my skin? Answer the question, right? You gotta say, why if I'm, if I'm adopted, and I'm of a different race, at a certain point, the question may come up. Like, what, what's going on with the differences here? Listen to the question that they are asking, and then make sure you try to answer that question. Right? And don't do it in such a complex, and we'll talk about some of these subjects that come up, but don't do it in such a complex way. Right? Like, that has to be... My, my daughter asked me, because I was teaching the film class, African-American film, and in preparation for that, I watch all these documentaries, and I sign all these documentaries, and we're watching the, the abolitionists, and you have some of the, the, one of the syllabi on there that lists all these wonderful documentaries. So the abolitionists is one of them, I'm watching the abolitionists, and they have this um, scene in there, and again, I'm trying to, it's a Saturday afternoon, and I'm trying to watch a documentary, and the girls are coming in the, in the living room, and I pause, and they go out to the living room, and I press play, and they come back in the living room, and they pause. And so finally, like, I went to the kitchen, and so, you know, Asha sleep, you know, comes down, and she's watching this thing on slavery. And I'm like, oh, Lord. So I heard her pausing, and she's like, I see in her face already. She's like, too late. And, <laughs> and she says, she says, Dad, she says, so, like, what's going on here? Right? And I'm like, all right, this is slavery. Right? And so she's five years old. Right? And I'm a historian. So I'm like, all right, cool. We got to talk about the Atlantic slave trade, right? And the history of slavery <laughs> in the world, right? And like, all right, where are we going to begin? And, and I kind of start fumbling and mumbling. And I'm like, and she's looking at me like, yeah, never mind, right? And she's just sort of, she's just sort of out, right? That wasn't her question. Her question really was the scene that she was seeing was Frederick Douglass being whipped. And what she was asking me was, why are these people beating that person? She, she didn't want a dissertation on the Atlantic slave trade. <laughs> right? She just wanted to know what was happening in this particular moment, in this scene, and then why was I watching it? Right? So we have to think about um, the, the, the actual questions that are being asked. Answer truthfully and candidly. This is hard to do. 
with children, especially our children. I, I am afraid to actually sit and think about the number of times I tell untruths to my children over the course of a day, right? It's like, you know, are we gonna, you know, are we having pizza for dinner? Yeah, just get in the car, right? I mean, <laughs> so it is, you know, we tend to fudge, we tend to fudge on the truth with our children if we think about it on just a regular basis. When it comes to this, you can't fudge, right? There's no gray area, right? You have, again, it's sharks in the water. Right? Because if they find out you told them something that wasn't true, right, it's, it's worse than, you know, Santa Claus didn't exist. Right? I mean, you have to be honest, right, with the questions that they are asking. Again, everything is age appropriate. Right? Always thinking about how old is my child, what can they, what can they take in. Younger children, statistics don't work. I tried. Right? That's the academic in me. Right? Four million enslaved people in the South, Asha. Like, what are you talking about, dude? <laughs> Emotion, right? They connect on an emotional level. It's all about feelings. Right? How would this make you feel? How does this make you feel? So you think about answering truthfully and honestly in that, in that way, in that context. But the first thing is you got to speak honestly and truthfully. Answer in terms that they understand. Use age-appropriate language. Don't follow my lead. Let's talk about the Atlantic slave trade with the three-year-old. It's not effective. They don't know what the hell you're talking about. Answer in terms that they understand. And then finally, we're going to transition the subject in a second. When you have these conversations, the same thing with teachers doing in the classroom. When you have these conversations with their children, even if they're short conversations, even if they are, you know, it's a question and an answer, you have to debrief. You have to follow up. Did you understand what I said? Tell me, what did, you, what did you hear when I said that? How do you feel about what I just shared, right? With younger children, if you're having a really engaged conversation, you can say, hey, let's sit down, and I want you to draw how you feel. You have to debrief to see where they are, right? Not because they're picking up something. Here's the thing that we all know about children. Like, children will learn something from what you say. The question is, is it what you want them to learn from what you say? And the only way to know that is to debrief, is to check in. Check in in that very moment. Like, what did you hear? What did you, how did you feel when I said this? Or what were you thinking? What made you ask that question? Right? And then, not to leave it. Difficult subject, hard history. Right? We'll ask the question, and then be like, man, I answered that. I'm good. Right? I'll see you later. Right? And then you don't ever want to bring that up again. Right? These aren't one-off things. You have to come back the next day. Remember when we were talking about that, and you asked that question? Because sometimes children don't want to answer in the moment. They're like, nah, I don't feel like talking about this right now. So you just say, okay, whenever you feel like it. Right? So it's a, de a debrief in the moment to see if they actually heard what you were trying to convey, and then a circle back, right? To make sure that you can come back so that they fully understood. So now here we go, the tough topics. What do we need to actually be talking about? And how do we have these conversations? One, thinking about our schools and our public spaces, let's just, let's just why mess around? Let's just start right off with the N-word and racial slurs. 
and the N-word being the, the most prominent one. And people will ask, white kids will ask all the time, can I use the N-word? And I'm like, no. <laughs> well, that's a double standard. And I'm like, that's too bad. <laughs> like, why do you feel entitled to use that word? There's no entitlement to it. You don't have the privilege of saying that. That's hard and fast. And if you're, it is something that you should establish early on with your children. That is not those types of words, that language, words that hurt and demean, we do not use. Period. We just do not use them. And it's not like we, we don't tell children there are words that they shouldn't use. We do that from the moment that they can speak. And I don't care how liberal your house is, because there are some liberal houses. I'm like, y'all wilding out. You should let your child talk to you like that. Like, y'all crazy. I don't know what y'all doing over here in this white house, but in this black house, like, that ain't appropriate. But even in those homes, there's language that we don't use. And this is one of them. Like, this is just a non-starter. You just don't use it. Period. We can move on to the next point. <laughs> like, it really isn't debatable. And yet, you hear it being debated all the time. And you hear it thrown at people all the time. Oh, black people use it in music and all that stuff. So? So? That's a separate conversation. That black people need to work out for themselves. In all marginalized communities. Need to work out for themselves. Just because they want to use language doesn't give you the right to use language that will be interpreted as detrimental, harmful, and hurtful. So when it comes to, and that's one of the easiest conversations to have with your children is language. These are the don't words. These are the no words. Because what are you doing right there? You're establishing barriers of right and wrong when it comes to race. And it's not complicated. It is literally black and white. This you do not say. This you do not use. Because it is harmful and hurtful to people. Period. And there's lots of ways that you can connect it back, right? If somebody calls you, you know, the S word, stupid, whatever it is, how did that make you feel? Right? Especially for younger children. Right? For older children, it gets a little complicated, right? For teenagers, right? it gets a little complicated, right? Why? Because teenagers feel that they know everything and are entitled to the world. Right? But as a parent, it is your responsibility to establish that is not language that we use. Period. Not open for discussion. And come up with some really ingenious and devious consequences if they use it. Look, part of this, part of this is just psychology. It's just psychops. It's just you are in a psychological warfare with your children. And you are battling against the world. Because the world is saying that some stuff is okay. And what you are saying is like, no, it's not. And so you have to establish where you are. And part of that conversation is with black kids too. 
Say, look, I understand your friends are saying it. I understand it's in the music. But I also understand that when you use it, you are giving permission to others to use it. And that has real world consequences. So you need to think about that when you use it in public, even when you use it in private. Black parents, too, got to establish these boundaries early on about what is appropriate language to use. But that, that's, you know, this is, now, now, now we're getting serious now. Identifying racism, personal prejudice versus systematic racism. Now, this is not a conversation. You don't go in a conversation with your child, however old they are, especially in middle school, young, like, all right, now we're going to have this conversation about systemic racism. They'll be like, what the hell? Daddy, this is why I don't like you, right? <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. But you do have to understand that there is this difference between what is personal race, personal prejudice, manifestations of individual behavior, and what is systemic. Like, what is institutional? What is built into the fabric of our society? Like, these two things are really important. And we often confuse them. Like, in America today, we'll say, there was a time, not too recently, where it was, like, easy to say, okay, like, this person is, a, is racist. Like, like a neo-Nazi. Like, now, I'm not so sure. Right? Like, a clan. Like, oh, yeah, the clan, they're racist. Like, bad. Right? Now, post-Charlottesville, I'm not so sure that there's consensus about that anymore, right? But the point is there is personal behavior that has to be identified and say, listen, you know, this type of racist behavior, racist language, racist acts, bullying, that is revolved, that is centered on race, that is personal behavior, and that is wrong. But that's not it. You also have to begin to think, begin to engage your children in conversations about the way that racism is inscribed in our communities. That is critically important. And that's heavy work. That's heavy lifting. But you gotta do it. You absolutely have to do it. And, and, there's, ways, and there's ways to do it. One way. Because the personal prejudice thing is easy. You just point that out. That's racist. He shouldn't have said that. That's, that's racial prejudice, right? And, I, and when you see it, you identify it. And you call it out for your children so that they can identify it. But when you see the systemic stuff, it becomes a little bit harder. But what can you do? Our girls just went on a, one of them, I don't remember which one. I lose track, because they always go on somewhere. So one of them went on this sort of city scavenger hunt, right? And, and sort of through, through sort of downtown Columbus, and they were going to the major landmarks and you know, identifying the parks and the, and, the, and the gardens and all this other stuff, which was great. It was wonderful. You could also do that to teach institutional systematic racism in the geography of the, place, the places that we live. You could, you could be right here in Bexley and take your child on a walking tour, right? Right down Main Street and say, I want you to count how many banks there are. I want you to identify or drive or drive through the community. We're going to drive for 10 minutes and tell me how many grocery stores we see, how many bookstores that we see, how many vacant lots are there. Right? And you just have them count. You don't do anything else, just count. And then when you finish, then drive to the other side of the tracks and spend 20 minutes doing the exact same thing. Tell me how many drugstores there are. Count how many parks and playgrounds you see. Now all you're doing is asking them to identify. And they will, it will become readily apparent. Well, why? I didn't find any vacant lots over here and yet there seem to be whole blocks that are vacant. Like, what's going on there? 
right? And then you open them, because the one thing that we know, kids are curious, and they will want to know, well, why is this the case? What you want to get them to is a point where they're asking why. Why is this the case, right? And then, hopefully, you would have done your homework. We just say, look, I can explain this, right? And that's another part that we'll talk about in a second, this idea of doing homework and knowing. Avoiding the colorblind trap I've already talked about. Don't just, just stop this, right? Just like, you're not doing anybody any favors. Like, I don't see race. You don't get a medal for that, right? Because you do. You are, you are in America, right? You breathe in the air that we breathe this. That's what we do. We see race. Don't do that. Right? You don't want to teach color blindness. What you want to teach is color fairness. Right? Treat people equitably based upon nothing else other than who they are as human beings. Like that's where we want to go. And you want to be in, in school districts or make sure that your school districts and schools that we attend are celebrating racial heritage and ethnic heritage. It's not enough just to weave stuff in. Like we want to weave stuff in throughout the curriculum over the course of the time. Absolutely. That's where we want to go. But you have to make sure that we're in places where we pause to celebrate. We pause to recognize and acknowledge cultural contributions that we call racial, right, from racial groups. Like that is important because that signals to our children that race and culture is important. And it's not just about tolerating people, right? It's about celebrating what they bring to the table. But if we fall into this idea of, oh, let's just be colorblind. No, you know what? That's insulting to me. I need you to see who I am for the fullness of who I am. And that involves and includes seeing my race. You got to explain white privilege. You can't get caught up if you're both black and white. Whatever you are, but especially if you're white, you gotta explain white privilege. And if you don't know what that is, just Google it. <laughs> but let me tell you what it isn't. Let me tell you what it isn't. And this is why you get, some white folks get defensive about this, but this has to explain to, your, to explain to your kids. White privilege is not what you've done as white people to achieve whatever success that you have achieved. White privilege is what you haven't had to do to achieve that success. That's the difference. In essence, that's what we're talking about and has to be explained. Everybody, most people in America, the vast majority gotta work hard. Unless you're the 1% of 1% and have 8 million people on your Instagram, right? Everybody has to put in work. Everybody has to work hard. But not everybody has to do the same thing. And when we think about how race has played out in America over the years, that is fundamental to what people have to do. Right? In the classroom and just walking down the street. And so that has to, kids have to explain that. Right? And it's not, about, it's not about guilt and blame. Right? That's critically important that we explain to our children, like, you are not responsible for the past. Especially for white kids, you hear that a lot. Parents will come and be like, I don't want to talk about race because I don't want my children to feel guilty. What do they got to feel guilty about? What have you done? 
kids, children shouldn't feel guilty by anything. We should not hold our children responsible for the sins of our parents, ourselves, our parents, our grandparents before. They are not responsible for that. But they are responsible for the future. They are responsible for the future. And we have to explain it to our kids. They are responsible for what comes next. And what we're trying to do is prepare them for what comes next. And they can't go through the world blindly thinking that all of these achievements are certainly of hard work, but the reason why other people haven't achieved the same things in the same way is because they just didn't work hard. If they would only work harder. If they would only do this. Why did they do that? Like why, you know, if you only work harder, you'll stop being poor. It's not the way poverty works in America. It's not the reasons for it. That is who's to blame. You gotta call out racism. This is critical. This is both for black folk and for white folk. Like this is when it gets serious. And this is what you got to do. Because the other thing that I've realized that children do, and this is personal experience, is children watch you. Like, I'm like, stop watching me, right? Like, do what I, do what I say, not what I, like, stop, just turn away. Children watch you, right? And they especially watch you when things get tense. That's when they zero in. And they are watching you like a hawk. And even if it's not involving you, even if there's something going on in your environment, a situation where people start raising voices or something seems unfair, something doesn't seem right, children are zeroing in on what that is. And what do they do when they see something going crazy? Something that's off, they turn immediately and see how you react. So if there is an incident, wherever it fits on this scale, right? I mean, the likelihood that you turn the corner like, and you walk into a Klan rally is not very high, right? It's probably higher now than it was a few years ago, but it's still not that high. But the likelihood that you see some kind of microaggression, the likelihood that um, somebody in the grocery store calls out somebody, calls them out of their name, calls a family, calls the police on somebody for just existing, right? The likelihood that you see that is pretty high. And the question becomes, what do you do when that occurs? Especially in the presence of your children. Like, that's when you have to actually engage and say, this isn't right, and this is why. And if it's safe to do so, to actually get involved. And usually, look, a lot of stuff, and it doesn't mean calling the police in most instances. Like, stop calling the police. <laughs> like, that ain't helpful. Like, that's really dangerous. Like, that's dangerous. Like, this is why black folk are like, what are you doing, right? Like, stop with the calling the police. Why? Because that shit is dangerous for black folks. Like that you turn a situation into something that could be life or death. But that doesn't mean that you can't get involved and speak up and say something. Right? Especially if it's a white person doing something. Because the likelihood that a white person will listen to a white person is much greater than the likelihood that a white person will listen to a person of color. So what does it mean to be an ally in those moments? It means you got to get involved. You got to speak up. You'll be amazed what disrupting a moment will do if you speak up. 
And you'll be amazed at what that signals to your child. Like, why, you know, I want my child to be a social justice warrior, right? to stand up for injustice. Well, if you never did it, what makes you think your child is going to do it? If grandma and grandpa are talking crazy when the news is on and you never say anything, you are raising a little racist. Because they will come back to you and say, well, why don't you ever say anything when grandma and grandpa were talking crazy? Or that uncle, or that brother, or that cousin. Like, that's, ain't no threat there. Like, you don't gotta call the cops on your family. But you can establish these barriers. Say, this is right, this is wrong. We don't do that. And you call them out. You're modeling what is right. And that is critically important. Critically important. This last thing is a little tricky, distinguishing between cultural appropriation and cultural celebration. Right? You always, you know, you have this around the holidays, you know, the Thanksgiving and all these other things, right? Cultural appropriation and cultural celebration. Cultural celebration is what we want to acknowledge and to recognize and to celebrate sort of diversity. But it, cultural appropriation is like, without any sensitivity to the culture of the people, you're just donning accoutrements, right? You're just playing around because you think it's nice and not acknowledging sort of the history and the culture of the people who are being represented. Right? We can all engage in other people's, sort of in the celebration of other people's culture, right? but we do it in a way that's sensitive to their lives and to their history. Like that's, that's where we want to go. That's where we want to be, right? And we want to stay away, that's what the whole, you know, the whole blackface. Like how is that even a thing in the 21st century? Like what is that? Like Megyn Kelly, no. Like, people, no. Right? We, we don't, like, oh, so cute. My child is dressed up like a little Indian. Oh, stop. It ain't cute. And we're, you know, we got people who are, look, I'm a baseball fan. There's something wrong with the Cleveland Indians. You can start right there. Like, here's the thing. You don't have to go far to find racism. Like, it is right here. And everything that we see can be a lesson for what we want to do, right? Difference between cultural celebration and cultural appropriation. Here's some next steps and here's some, here's some homework. Have the courage to, when you go home, to share with your child why you were not home, why you chose to attend a discussion on race and racism, and then one of the two or, th one, two or three things that you perhaps came away from with it. That can begin the conversation. On the way in today, I was talking to, I was speaking in the back seat, my three girls are there, I was talking to my other girl, I said Asha and Aliana, right, the, six, the eight year old and the six year old, I said, I'm going to give a talk. I won't be home immediately. I'm going to give a talk in Bexley. They're like, oh, where? At the library. 
What about? I'm gonna talk about race and racism. It's a little quiet. And then a Layla, the three-year-old, jumps in and says, I have a race. And I was like, what? I was like, <laughs> I was like, daddy doing his thing. If you understand this, I got a race, right? I'm like, okay, good. I'm, I'm, I know chess, I'm like, all right. Now her sisters turn to her and I'm like, this kid don't know what she's talking about, right? And I'm like, no, she had a race, right? And then she says, yes, at the track. We're having, we're having the Jingle Bell, the Jingle Bell race. I thought, I just swore I was doing something. And she's talking about, Miss Lee, am I right? The Jingle, they got the Jingle Bell race, right? She was clear, she was clear about this. So the assignment is, look, we got to talk about this. We got to talk about these things. Now there's also something, and I want us to pull this up for a second. So if you have any questions on the card, do, now is the time to sort of slide them over to the side, and we're going to get to these. But one of the things that we can do, one of the things that you all can do as parents is not just talk about things, but it's to take our children to places where history happened and to allow place to serve uh, as a teaching instrument for us. And so one of the things, and this can happen at any age, and we're here in Ohio. Again, this is the underground railroad capital of America, right? You can go on down to Cincinnati, go to the Freedom Museum, right? I mean, there are wonderful places you know, along the Ohio River. Here in Ohio, there are, there are markers. I mean, there's wonderful places that we can go to sort of experience the power of place, and it, especially when kids get older. And it is incumbent upon us to do that, right? To make these connections between the contemporary moment and the past. We'll go through a couple questions here that came forward. And then, again, this is sort of ongoing conversation and dialogue, so we'll certainly keep that going. One of the questions that left out to me was, have you explicitly taught your girls about the N-word at their ages? Have you explicitly taught your girls about the N-word at their ages? No. Why? Because I'm scared, right? Like, I have been trying so hard to hold off on that discussion. And now my eight-year-old daughter, because we don't play music that has it in it, we don't let them watch movies that has it in it. But I'm at that, right now at age eight, I've been able to sort of have it, avoid the exposure to it. But right now, third grade, it's time. And it's a conversation that I'm thinking about how to do it and what's the proper way to do it. There was a moment where I thought the gig was up. It was about four years ago, and she came home, and if you remember that um, Blackish episode, there was a Blackish episode in which they talk about the N-word in song, and we watched Blackish because we couldn't watch the Cosby Show anymore for obvious reasons, and and we left town. We saw the episode, but we didn't allow her to see it, right? But then we left town, my wife and I, and then Grandma was watching the kids, right? Oh man. And so she watches the episode, and then she comes back and she's like, Daddy, what's, we come home, she's like, Daddy, what's the N-word? And she was only five years old, and I was like, I am not ready for this conversation right now. I am not prepared, I'm not ready for this. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not, you know, you're too young. I did all the things I told you not to do today, right? I just shut that conversation down, right? And then, like, go to your room, right? And so then, but she's a kid, so she doesn't drop it, right? 
she, and so eventually she sort of lets it go. And then about three months later, right, it starts in September, three months later, come November, she comes up to me, bursts in the door. She's like, Daddy, Daddy, I know what the N-word is. Exactly what I thought, right? Like, oh my God, like, oh no. So I'm like, I can't run from it anymore, right? It was bound to happen. I didn't want it to happen now. And I was like, are you sure you know what the N word is? She was like, yes, I know what the N word is. So I said, all right, well, go ahead and tell me what it is, right? Because I'm kind of stalling, right? Like, I'm trying to buy time here because I'm like, all right, we got to go back to Atlantic slavery, right? Like, Atlantic slavery. And so I was like, all right, so what's, so like, okay, you know what it is? Yes. Okay, tell me what it is. And because she's five years old, she's like, if I say it, will I get in trouble? I'm like, say the damn word. Right? And so she she's like, okay. And she takes a deep breath and she looks at me to make sure that like I'm okay with it. And she says, Michigan. <laughs> Michigan. The M word is Michigan, and we're not supposed to say it. And I was like, you're darn right, and we are never going to say that word again in this house. But I, I think my Michigan run is about up. So we're going to have to sit down and have this serious conversation about do words and don't words, right? And this is one of the don't words, but when you start with that for a little black child, you're going to have to unpack this stuff. But she already knows. I mean, she, she, she understands sort of questions of racial identity already because we've been having these conversations, but it's something that we do have to sort of build up to. Here's a great question. Why do we Americans talk about uh, the Holocaust with more ease than we do slavery? That's a great question. And the answer to that is we can put the Holocaust over there. It doesn't involve us. It doesn't hit home. Like, we're good at saying, Look, you watch one of the things we do, right? It's sort of African American history through film. And we watch, um, we watch a film on Jesse Owens, right? Race, it was a few years ago, right? Two years ago, Race. And it was wonderful. And guess who are the bad guys? The Nazis, right? Over there, all right? Adolf Hitler, terrible guy, wouldn't shake Jesse Owens' hand. Well, guess who else wouldn't shake Jesse Owens' hand when he came back home? FDR, right? President of the United States. So we're good at recognizing and projecting onto other people that which we don't want to deal with ourselves. But as you can see, we got to deal with it. Right. Do you have any tips on how white people can best approach other white people who are using cultural appropriation uh, without speaking for people of color? Yeah, no, that's good, right? Because, and this has to do with your own racial identity, right? Like you don't want to, you don't need to go up to other white folk, right, and say, in the name of black people, I say, <laughs> don't do that, right? Like, no, you approach them as they are, right? It's like, look, I mean, that's just a human thing. It's like, you shouldn't do that, and these are the reasons why, right? Like, there are people who find that deeply insensitive and hurtful and harmful, and whatever it is that would harm you or hurt you, you wouldn't want people doing that to you, so don't do that to them. Right? I mean, again, it is a way to just to sort of speak to people at the most human level to try and get them to listen. And I believe that most people are genuine people, right? And they kind of want to learn, and they don't want to do harm. Look, you got people who do want to do harm, good luck working with them. I ain't interested, right? But most people, I truly believe, want to do right by other folk. And if you approach them in a genuine sort of sensitive way and say, listen, in serious way, like, that's, 
I find that offensive. Right? It's not just about sort of other people. I am offended that you are doing this because it is offensive to other people. Like I'm offended by your use of the N-word. I am offended by your I am I am a straight male and I am offended by your use of derogatory terms against gay folk. So you don't do it in the name of other people, you do it in the name of yourself. Right? In the name of your family and your children. How should racism impact school choice? I decided to send my kids to my local public school because there were no black kids there. Did I read that right? I decided, oh. I wrote it wrong, sorry. Oh, okay. I decided not to send my kids. I was about to say, whoa, okay. <laughs> right. I was going to say, whoa, that's a whole lot of truth up in here. public school because there were no black kids there. You know what? That's not a you issue. That's a public school issue. Yeah. Right? Like it is incumbent upon our public schools to make sure that our schools are diverse and they reflect our communities. Right? And not just Bexley. Right? Like this is see one of the things that we have done is we've created these artificial this is a big this is a big picture question, right? One of the things that we've done is we've created these artificial boundaries about where our schools ought to be. Like there's nothing in the there's nothing in the Bible that says Bexley begins here and ends there, right? Or the Torah or the Quran. Like, that's something that we came up with ourselves. I mean, and, and then we say, oh, well, it's unfortunately not going to be able to get any black kids in here, right? It's like, look, that's a, that's a school district issue. That school districts, not just one, but school districts need to come and solve. There is no reason that these schools should be as white as they are and as black and brown as they are. But now the question then becomes, as a parent, what do you do? And this is a very real question. We, we got two minutes before? Okay. This is a very real question. A serious question that black parents, and I don't, I don't know if white parents understand that black parents deal with this. And it's something that we deal with. Like what do we do? What does it mean to send our children to majority white schools? Like, that's something we wrestle with. Because in a sense, and, it, and you get, white people are like, oh, like, why, would, why would that even be a concern? Like, why would you even, like, that's not something I ever thought about. I think about it every day. Am I doing more harm than good by sending this child to a majority white school? And I got to do a lot of heavy lifting when she comes home to make sure that they are learning sense of self, a positive racial identity. Like that's, some, that's a real issue that black folk deal with, especially sort of black middle class. Right? Black working class, most black working class folk don't have many options. Black middle class folk have more options in terms of not only where we live, but where we can send our children to. And then it's like, are we literally turning our children over to the enemy? and exposing them to harm. And what's the one thing that we as parents want to do? We want to protect our children from harm. And I don't have a good answer for it. It really depends, I think, on us individually to make that sort of decision. But if you do make that decision, it does require you to do some real heavy lifting back home and positive reinforcement. And it's not enough, and this is something 
I'm just gonna let the white folk who are still here, y'all just gonna be privy to this conversation. This is like bonus material. Like, like one of the things that, like, some, especially black middle class, black folk living in Bexley, I live in Pickerington right now, wherever you move around, if you're in a suburb, whatever it is, and we're raising these African-American children, children of color, and they're going to majority white schools, and if the only black people, only children of color that they see are the one or two children that they see in school, and their family members, guess what they wind up doing? They wind up seeing other black folk just like white kids do. Because the black folk that they see who are in their, in their home, their family members, they just become exceptions to the dominant stereotypes that exist out there. That's how powerful those stereotypes are. So your family members who are going to college and cousins, and you be like, oh, I can point to them and see them go to college. And then you're wondering why, well, why does my kid think that black folk aren't as smart as white kids? Like you had all these models. No, nah, those are family members who are, who are now exceptional because they were never exposed to random black people. Like, there is real power in random black people. <laughs> like, for black people and for white people. Like, you have to expose our children. Like, how do you counteract these negative stereotypes? You have to immerse our, you have to immerse your child, we have to immerse our children in environments in which they are no longer, if they are black, they are in the majority, and if they're white, they're not in the majority. Like, don't come, and I've had conversations after various instances where white parents would come to me and they would say, like, I don't understand why my daughter said this. We raised her not to do that, right? She, we raised her to respect all cultures and all people and all races. And I'm like, have you ever had any black people to your house? No. Does your child have any black dogs? No. Are there any black images in your home? No. Has this child ever been in an environment in which there were a majority of black folk? No. Well, what the hell, what the hell do you think was going to happen? You're saying one thing and practicing something completely different. And here's the thing. It ain't that hard to find black people. <laughs> like, it really is, then. I was like, and it's important that we do, because we still live in these rigidly segregated worlds and neighborhoods and communities. Our schools are segregated, yeah, our schools are segregated, our, our communities are segregated. So you gotta, you gotta figure out and find some people of color. And how do you do that? Take your kid to a playground in a black neighborhood. It ain't that hard. And watch what happens. Magically, they play <laughs> with the other kids around them. And this is important for both children of color and for white kids, especially children of color who are not in majority black neighborhoods. Right? So that they can go and associate and realize that they can interact with children and people who they don't know. And that itself disrupts all the stereotypes. And if you don't feel comfortable going to a, a playground neighborhood, go to a black church. Like black churches always welcome white folk. It's like, come on in. They even got a white Jesus if you're Christian. Most of them. <laughs> you feel right at home. Do we need to give away these books? Yes, sir. All right, we got to give away some books. I'm going to let you. Yeah, okay, let me, let me take one more question. We'll take one more. We got time for one more question? Half a question. All right, half a question. Half a question. Half a question.
How do we engage our children's white friends, teachers, and our co-workers in these conversations about racism? How do we engage them? Simply do it. Simply raise, that's not even complicated. Have a question. You just bring it up. And one of the ways in which you can do it is either if somebody says something that's crazy and you want to interject, even if it's like real crazy or just a little crazy, all you have to do is say, why do you think that? Why did you say that? Let them do the work. Let them explain. You ain't have to get in an argument. Let them explain. And that will give you one of two things. That will let you know if they are speaking out of ignorance or they are speaking out of purposeful hate. Which you need to know. <laughs> Co-workers and family members. But let them do that work. And that, I mean, that is, that's also something that we can tell our kids. If somebody says something, if a teacher says something in the classroom, you tell them, raise your hand, why did you say that? Not confrontational. That's a, they're on a fact-finding mission to gather that information and bring it home. Let those who are saying this other stuff, saying things that are inappropriate, saying things that fall on that spectrum of racism, let them do the work. And then you can respond in kind if you like or say, oh, that's interesting, and walk away. And let that sit and marinate with them. Say, damn, I thought we were cool. I guess we're not that cool. <laughs> All right, I'll turn it over. <laughs>